0: Welcome to Dream Makers, candid conversations with women that will change the way that you see success, purpose, and what it takes to bridge the two. I'm Neha Sampat, a three-time tech founder and CEO with a focus on companies that are places to dream big, build up, and be a good human. I'm CEO of ContentStack and also a certified sommelier. So yes, we drink wine here, regardless of the time of day. (laughs) I'm joined by Gayathri Ranganjari Shah, a journalist based in Mumbai. She's co-author of Changemakers, 20 Women Transforming Bollywood Behind the Scenes, a contributing editor for both Vogue India and Architectural Digest India, and she writes a column for one of India's largest English-language newspapers, The Hindu. Today, we're going to talk about gender roles, the media landscape, and Indian culture. Let's get started. Hi, Gayatri. Hi, Neha.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited that you're here. You're officially our first journalist guest. How does it feel to be the one that is the focus of the interview this time around?
1: It feels a little strange, to be honest. You know, it's definitely a a role reversal that I haven't sort of played very frequently. I'm used to asking the questions, not necessarily answering them. When we had the interview together for Vogue
0: India, I had so much fun in our conversation that I felt so compelled to have you on the other side and learn more about you and your journey. So I'm super excited that you're here. And it is Eight in the morning, my time. What time is it for you?
1: It is now uh, 6.45 p.m. in the evening in Bombay. And actually, it's interesting because we have thunder and lightning as we speak.
0: Oh, wow. We had rain overnight here in Austin, Texas as well. So, similar weather, different time zones for sure. You're in a much more respectable time zone for drinking wine. But (laughs) (laughs) in order to accompany you, I have broken my rules and I am going to have a few tastes of this wine with you. So, both Gaia 3 and I have a bottle of Eros from York Winery with us. Mine is a 2015 vintage and Gaia 3's is a 2018. This is actually one of my favorite Indian wines. We were talking about it before we started the show, and it's interesting. I've kind of watched the journey of Indian wines over the last 15 years since we started doing business in India, and every year it's sort of evolved a little bit more and more, and it's become a lot more enjoyable over the years, and actually something that I look forward to now when I go to India. And so this wine is actually one of my favorites from all of the red wines that are available in India. Again, it's called Eros. But my background here on the Zoom is also a background of the winery where this comes from. And I think one of my favorite things about this is it's a family-run, family-owned winery. And the original founder of this winery had a dream of building out a nice winery in this region in India, Nashik. And they had a few children and wanted one of them to take the lead in, in turning this into a world-class winery. And so the father asked 16-year-old Kailash Gurnami, who at the time, you know, didn't really know a lot about winemaking or wineries or viticulture, if he would be willing to take the lead for the family and learn about winemaking. And so a few years later, he went to Australia to learn about winemaking, came back at 23 years old to India, and he became India's youngest winemaker at the time and um, has since gone on to build a beautiful wine. And so we're going to taste it now. And this wine, mine is 90% Cab, 10% Shiraz. Yours will probably be a slightly different blend, it might say, on the bottle.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking it up, Neha. It says it is 24% Cab and a 76 Shiraz blend.
0: Okay, so completely flipped, actually, in terms of the blend. So that should be interesting. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you again for being on the show.
1: Thank you. And also, thank you for introducing me to a red wine that I would not have otherwise come across, I think.
0: Of course. <clears throat> it's a pretty big wine for early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and normally, when I do an international guest, I'll try to do a white wine, but I had to have you try this one. And also, I happen to have carried a bottle with me from India. Getting an Indian wine in the US is actually not super easy. So, I, can imagine. I wanted to have something that we could both compare. Uh, But this is a big enough wine to have with like a pretty large meal. I do like to have a glass of it just by itself as well, or even with like, you know, some like really sharp cheese or something to cut through it. But it's a big, bold wine and uh, lots of fruit in the punch, a little bit of oak as well. Are you getting some of that okiness?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely getting the fact that it's quite oaky. And I probably should have just regulated the temperature a little bit more, you know, so because here now it's actually quite humid and warm in India, in Bombay rather. So perhaps this wine could have just, it's actually very drinkable, very nice, but uh, maybe I would have chilled it slightly. Makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. Well,
0: let's jump in and learn a little bit more about you, and we'll continue to revisit the wine. I know you had yours breathing for a while. Mine, I just opened, so that also causes a little bit of difference in in the flavor profile. So when when we met, obviously you were interviewing me for Vogue India, and what I loved about our conversation and about your work is that it's both aspirational and inspirational. And for your Vogue series, you focused on Indian women who had achieved a certain level of success in the business world. I'd like to learn a little bit more about why.
1: So uh, Neha, you know, we have a strange conundrum uh, going on in India, where as we have grown as an economy, uh, let's just park COVID aside and take that, you know, sort of that's sort of an aberration, that time period. But as the Indian economy has grown, women in India have been dropping out of the workforce. So you would imagine that the, you know, the, the graph would sort of track and correlate, but actually there's been an inverse relationship And so we've actually gone from having 27% of workforce participation by women drop further. And now the stats are quite alarming. It's about, I think, the latest thing I might have read was about 17%. So, uh, you know, I've always been sort of really intrigued by this. And the Vogue India series on women who had achieved something professionally was kind of my way to sort of show that, look, we have a bunch of different issues going on, of course, structurally, socially, culturally, but that, you know, you can actually achieve something. And I wanted to put these inspirational stories, such as of people like yourself, out there so that other women could feel, you know, that they also had that possibility, you know, role models, essentially, that one could sort of look up to, identify with, perhaps try to track. And that was the, the kind of the genesis of that series.
0: That's alarming, (laughs) to say the least, that the numbers, and I know now we're hearing a lot about the great resignation, you know, everywhere around the world and people kind of falling out of the workforce, but that's alarming that so many women have fallen out in India and kind of expect the opposite to happen. Hopefully you're making an impact there and, and we all can as well. You wrote the book Changemakers. Let's talk a little bit about the book and what drove you to write that book.
1: So yeah, so so the book came out in uh, late 2018. I co-wrote this book with a very close girlfriend of mine called Malika Kapoor, who is now based in London. At the time that we wrote this book, I was in Bombay and she was living in Hong Kong. So it was a very interesting project to take on from two different geographies. And we sort of wrote this book essentially to, to sort of shine a light on women who are really influencing popular culture in in this country uh you know i mean the hindi film industry popularly known as bollywood it has enormous influence on the way indians sort of digest popular culture let's say you know it sets trends in fashion music dance what have you uh you know sort of it portrays the kind of the narrative that society is grappling with on particular issues as well so again to go back to that point of women dropping out of the workforce Malika is also a journalist. And what we found in our sort of research, initial research, when we were thinking about this book is that while, you know, Indian women are not working as much in this particular industry, Bollywood, the film industry, um, which has historically been quite hostile to women, has not been very welcoming to women. Actually, there was uh, there were a lot more women present and a lot more women working on film sets. And uh, that sort of why we decided to explore this topic in further detail. We did not want to focus on any of the movie actors. They get a lot of play and amplification. What we were really interested in were the women who are really, you know, a film unit is hundreds of people working together. And we were really interested in the women who were sort of helping to bring some of these projects together. That's why we, we sort of undertook this, you know, this behind the camera, so to speak, women working behind the camera, not in front of it.
0: What were some of your learnings? I know that it was important for you to focus on women behind the camera and focus on not just the stars, but looking at the others that kind of bring together the whole scene. What were you hoping to achieve with that? What did you learn?
1: You know, everybody's always fascinated by the glamour of the movie business, whether you're in Hollywood or in Bollywood. But I think what we learned was how incredibly professionalized and hardworking this community of creatives are, of course, both men and women that you know it has definitely become much more professionalized in the past 20 years you know it used to be kind of like a scrappy sort of industry it was it was not even recognized as an, as an industry by the government of india till the late 80s by the late 90s sorry i beg your pardon so these people could not get financing to fund films and so that was part of the reason that the reputation of the industry was quite poor you know because they would need to to kind of Get financing from all sorts of strange quarters, you know, the underworld and all of that. Once they got recognized as an industry, they could approach banks and other financial institutions for funding. And that started to help professionalize the entire, you know, sort of uh, business. And because of that, you started seeing people from quote unquote, you know, sort of uh, backgrounds. I would never have considered the movie business as a professional career path coming into it, you know. Army children, for example, or children of doctors or whatever, you, you know, whatever it might be. People who went to university started getting attracted uh, into the field. And that's how you've had really kind of an explosion of great content coming out of the business now.
0: That's incredible. And it's interesting that so many different backgrounds come together to produce film. And it's, it's interesting that you uncovered some of that.
1: Yeah. And also when Malika and I were doing our research, we came across the case of a woman called Charu Khurana, who as recently as 2014 won the right for women to work as makeup artists in the movies. Before that in India, if you were a woman, you could not work as a makeup artist in the movies. I know it sounds insane. And that's exactly what we thought. We were like, are we reading this right? So Charu was a young woman who wanted to work as a makeup artist in the movies. And she went and she spent a lot of money. Her parents took out loans and all that. And she she became a professional makeup artist. And then she moved to Bombay. She's originally from Delhi. And she moved to Bombay to basically start out her career. And she was shut out by the very powerful makeup unions, which were comprised of men and they would not let her work. They would come and disrupt the movie sets. They would you know, start, they would say, we're you know, we gonna fi- have you guys fined because women can't work as makeup artists. So she basically didn't have the right, to her, her right to work was infringed upon. And she then got so fed up at this injustice that she decided to do something about it. And she took her case to court and her case went all the way up to the Supreme Court of, of India and she won uh, her case in uh, in 2014. Actually, I'll give you the date. It was the 14th November, 2014. And that is when the Supreme Court said that this is the most archaic, ridiculous thing we've ever, you know, when we, this has to go. So it was because of Charu's intervention that women can now work as makeup artists in the movies. And that is really what got us intrigued. We said, if there's this one person, Charu, who has done this, there must be so many other remarkable women in the movie business. And uh, that's what we set out, set out to find. That is so shocking and so incredible. And just to like lay this out,
0: this was less than seven years ago that that that's happened. Right. That's just unbelievable. Thank you for sharing that story. Appreciate it. All right. For someone who has aspirations to write a book one day, including me, I'd love to write one one day, what can you tell us about the process and maybe give us some advice about how to think about that?
1: Well, it's not for the faint-hearted, let me put it that way. (laughs) I think the most important thing when when you're writing a book is to be extremely disciplined. That means, you know, you have to sort of allocate whether you're doing it as your main focus your main task for the day, or if you're doing it sort of as a side project or whatever it is, you have to allocate a certain number of hours, you have to have deadlines, you have to be able to meet those deadlines. Uh, You know, we conducted, I want to say, I mean, hundreds of interviews, and then we had to transcribe all of those and document them and all of that. So you really have to have the time management sort of down pat, as it were and really sort of you know being able to keep track of disparate pieces of information and data but i mean listen it's not rocket science and that's why you know many people write books i just think the important thing is to be passionate about it and you know it's like life just show up you have to just kind of show up for for the work
0: awesome thank you you said a beautiful thing when we were preparing for this about your purpose and it was to show indian women possibilities and it's a passion that i share with you and it's for me women in general we talked about that a little bit, but it's it's also to show the world the beauty of India and what India has to
1: offer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, listen, I tell stories for a living in uh, you know different sort of formats. Like you, I also had a podcast, and then you know, obviously, my writing, whether it's a book or whether it's a magazine article or a newspaper story or what have you, and or for digital you know, the idea is to tell stories. And for me, I think it's important to be able to share these stories of of an incredible uh, country and culture that I come from. And in particular, of course, it's women, but also, you know, India's design heritage. It's, you know, what's happening in, in contemporary design or the arts, visual arts, or, you know, whether it's uh, not so much dance and music, because that's not my area of expertise, but anything that sort of, you know, brings beauty into the world. I mean, I would broadly categorize it as culture. And so, you know, if I'm able to tell those stories and shine a light on on something that will make other people, even if it's just one person interested, hopefully it's not just one, but I'll take what I can get. That's really what I think is my purpose. I love
0: that. And I have to tell you a story that kind of bridges what you're talking about back to Bollywood. And I many years ago, of course, studied wine. And when I had the opportunity to go back on vacations and travels, I go back to wine regions. And I lived in France for a little while in college. So I had gone to the Loire region. And I decided to take my husband back there a few years ago. So we rented these bicycles. And we were going from like a one of the wineries to another. And there's a lot of castles there. And it's such a beautiful landscape. And were on our bicycles, you know, in the midpoint of our journey and decided to pull over to pick up a couple of bottles of water from like a patrol station. So we walk in and literally there's nothing there besides like a refrigerator that had some ice and water and then a case. And in the case was these DVDs with Bollywood films. And it was only Bollywood, there was nothing French. And I, you know, in my broken French, I asked the guy, like, what, you know, what's the story behind this? And she, and and this was just a tiny little town in the middle of Loire Valley in France. And he said, everybody here is obsessed with Bollywood. It's like nuts. This whole town is obsessed with Bollywood. And I was just, it was so shocking to me that this tiny little town in France would have that obsession. And I just thought it was so cool that, you know, that, 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 awareness existed, but that there was a love for our country and and our world, even though it was seen through the eyes of Bollywood, which is not reality, but still, I thought it was really cool and interesting. So I had to share that because it kind of brings it all kind of full circle.
1: That's a wonderful, wonderful anecdote. And I think that that's something that so many Indians find, you know, I, you know, that's why we call it our soft power, because you can go to remote parts of Africa or Asia, or in your case, you've gone to a remote, remote part of France and you find that there are these, you know, these strange moments where, where people know either a movie star or they know some song or they know something, you know, have seen some film and they've watched it on repeat, Yeah, you know, all of that. So it's, I think it's really quite wonderful.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Gayatri, do you consider yourself a dream maker? Ooh,
1: Well, you know, I think in my own way, I try to prod people into questioning the status quo, especially where women are concerned. And in a country like India, that's pretty rebellious. So maybe, you know, in my small way, I I hope, you know, that I'm helping someone to dream. So if that makes me a dream maker, then I'll take it.
0: I think it absolutely does. And I don't know that I would have had you here if I didn't consider you one. So (laughs) I just love to hear how people see that. So I like to talk a lot about the road less traveled, and how a career can be a journey of twists and turns versus, you know, just a straight line. And I think that's important and okay for people to understand that things can change like that. And you actually started your career in the financial industry. I was (laughs) interested in learning a little bit more about that journey. Maybe you can talk about that and, and just let us know how you got from there to here.
1: So I think I'm a living embodiment of someone who has had a kind of a very strange uh, career path. You know, I never really thought of journalism as a career when I was in college or anything like that. I've always loved to write, you know, and obviously was a big consumer of the news, but never really saw myself in that role. I went to um, undergraduate and graduate school in the United States. I attended a small but oldest women's college in the United States called Mount Holyoke. And uh, after I graduated from Mount Holyoke, I had a degree in economics and political science. And then I knew that I wanted to live in New York City. And I needed to be able to afford uh, that dream since we're on the Dream Makers podcast. So I was like, I need a job that's going to be able to support me. So I ended up getting a job as a management consultant. So I joined a firm that was starting its New York office. And uh, that was really the beginning. So I was a management consultant for a number of years One of the best parts of my job was not the strategy stuff and all of that, which was fine, that was interesting. But we had the intranet in the office in those days, and I used to love writing movie reviews because in those days I used to watch a lot of movies. So I'd watch, you know, and then we'd sort of exchange notes in the on this office intranet, and it was always so fun. And I was like, I really, you know, miss writing. You know, we, I mean, writing PowerPoint slides and stuff is not that much fun. So on a lark, I applied to Columbia to the journalism program, and I got accepted, and I got a degree in journalism. But the problem is that once I graduated, the people who wanted to hire me were the business publications. And I didn't really want to report the business stories. That wasn't my idea of fun. So then I went back to my old firm, my consulting firm, and I did media consulting with them for a while in London and Cambridge, uh, Boston, whatever. I, I bounced around a little bit. And then I ended up back in London and I saw an ad in the Economist newspaper. I mean, stuff like this, I can't, you know, it's like sometimes I look back and I was like, did that really happen? And there was an ad for a leading policy analyst that the UK treasury was was uh, interested in in hiring. So I sat for a written exam and then I went in and I had a bunch of interviews and I got this job and I became a British civil servant. And the Brits are really interesting because they allow Commonwealth citizens, I'm a citizen of India, to work in their government in certain in certain uh, departments. So the Treasury is one of them. So I worked on public sector pay issues and like the teachers were going to go on strike. It was really kind of interesting because you're reading this stuff in the news, but then we're like working on like, how do we balance the budget? And how can we pay these public sector workers and all that? You know, how do we pay these teachers and make sure they don't go on strike? So it was super fun. But then I wanted to be back in New York. And so I moved back and You know, I I obviously could not hold on to that job since I wasn't in London anymore. And I got a job as an equity analyst at Deutsche Bank. So at Deutsche Bank, I was covering household and consumer products companies. uh, So companies like Colgate and Avon and Procter & Gamble, companies like that. And so I had to write like these hundred page research reports. And that was actually super fun uh, because I got to do the writing part, right? So I still have some of those reports lying around. I don't even know if banks do these things anymore, but they used to back in those days. And then my husband and I decided to move to India. So when we moved to India, this is now we're talking, I'm kind of old now, so 15 years ago. So I was really fortunate that, you know, it was sort of the time when a lot of these overseas publications were setting up shop in India. Now, of course, the media landscape has completely changed in India. But at the time, it was sort of a good place to be. So I ended up getting a job at a magazine that was about to launch. And then maybe in a, in a couple of years, I just quit and I went freelance, you know, and I've been freelance ever since. So that's kind of a really long winded way of telling you I had multiple jobs and did many things and then eventually became a journalist.
0: That's amazing. And you have had lots of twists and turns and lots of real world experience in different kind of just different walks of life, which I think probably makes you a better journalist and an investigator. And I think that's a super interesting journey that you've been on. What advice do you have for listeners who are considering a change in their career or a pivot? What would you tell them?
1: It's hard and it's you know it's, it's, it can be scary and daunting, especially when you do really need that paycheck. But I think it's really important to love doing what you're doing. I think that kind of satisfaction, emotional satisfaction. I think nothing really beats it. And, you know, for me personally, I left high-paying jobs to go work in a very low-paying one. I was able to do that. I, you know, I I realized how uh, fortunate I am that I could make that happen for myself. But, and for many people, that's not even a choice, right? You have to kind of do what you need to do in order to kind of get by. And people stay in jobs because of, you know, health insurance reasons and all of that. I know the reality of the United States, for example, and frankly, even in India. But I think if you have the opportunity and you're able to take the risk without uh, impinging on your family's needs and your own personal needs, I say go for it. Try it out. At worst comes to worst, you know, it won't work. And then you can go back to doing the thing that, you know, was, was keeping you steady or, you know, whatever, stable.
0: For sure. I mean, that's almost spoken like an entrepreneur. And that's the advice I often give when people are considering, you know, starting their own thing. I mean, you kind of just have to give it a shot and, and see what it does for you. So you mentioned this, that the media and journalism industry has evolved and changed quite a bit over the years. What have you observed
1: there? Oh my god don't become a journalist no i'm i'm you know listen we just had we just had i mean i i'm i'm certainly not an investigative journalist and i don't do the kind of the really tough work that you know so many incredible journalists around the world are doing and of course you know that two journalists won the nobel peace prize this year which is just remarkable and it's really a shot in the arm for everyone who like toils away speaking truth to power to governments that are you know authoritarian or unwilling to be open to criticism and dissent so like I said, when I first moved here uh, to India, there were a lot of companies that were setting up shop. Condé Nast showed up here, and then you know started a bunch of India um, titles. And similarly with other publications, Harper's Bazaar, all of them talking about fashion journalism, but also um, but also you know sort of other things. And of course, digital became a big thing as well. Right, the internet exploded in India. Television channels proliferated in a crazy way. But I think what's happened is that. You know, we have a strange situation in India where a lot of the big media houses are owned by business people, corporates and or politicians. So then the room for really kind of free, you know, sort of the free press becomes narrower. And, uh, you know, it's not just in India. We see it happening in, in places all over the world. In the United States, small papers, you know, metros, things like in, you know, I have I've sort of folded the economic uh, the economics of running a publication or a media outlet are, are extremely stressed advertising just doesn't exist everybody's like getting their news on twitter and everybody's a journalist anybody who has a phone is a journalist so you know it's like what what is the so it, it's you know it's definitely a time period for the profession where i think the professionals are feeling a little i would say the sentiment is not it's not a buoyant sentiment let me put it that way
0: And you kind of mentioned this, but social media has had an impact, of course. What are some thoughts about the contributions there?
1: Well, you know, the thing is that these bloggers and influencers and people like that have, um, you know, sort of, in a sense, kind of made the role of the journalist just fall by the wayside, right? So, and I think that's part of the problem. It's interesting you're asking me this question because it's something I wrestle with. And I was just on this trip with a bunch of uh, fellow journalists, about five, six of them. And we really sort of were sort of talking about this issue, is how how do you distinguish really good editorial content from something that mm-hmm. someone is just pushing out there because they were paid or you know, and it's easily digestible, it's in 15 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever. Who's going to read the 800-word piece? Forget the 1500-word piece or the 2000-word uh, piece, you know, or whatever, you know. Everything has to be digestible. It has to be in sound bites. It has to be pithy and quick. I mean, no one has an attention span anymore. And I'm, I mean, listen, I'm bemoaning this, but it's something that people have been talking about for years, you know. So I, I don't know. But at the same time, look, we, you know, there there are like great pockets of hope The New York Times has uh, subscription levels have gone up significantly, you know, when well, while Trump was in office and now, you know, and that's continued. So and the people who want to consume good media will continue to consume it. It's just that how do we separate the noise? You know, there's just so much out there now.
0: I have a prediction which might be just opinion, (laughs) but I believe that there's a craving for good journalism and for truth and for some level of investigation again, which you know, probably got prompted by a lot of the political landscape that we've all experienced globally for the last several years. But I feel like there's there's such a strong craving for kind of center, like just real world scenarios and real world news that there's going to be a comeback for journalism. And I find it in the conversations I have with the millennials that are just like, yes, they like to consume things in small doses, but they're also craving like what's real and they're like pushing for it. And so I hope that that's true. And as someone who also, you know, my undergrad was in journalism and communication. That's right. So I have a I have a strong like conviction for for truth and and reality. So I um, have a lot of respect for journalism and for you and for the whole industry and hope that it evolves into something that we can all count on over over the years.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) So I'm going to move into Rapid Fire, and I like to ask my guests a few questions at the end of every episode. So I'm going to start with this. What is your wake-up song? What gets you going?
1: Sunshine Reggae by Laid Back. This summer, it was playing on repeat. A girlfriend of mine from LA introduced me to it, and then I just love that song now. So, So it's a wonderful song. Awesome.
0: I have not heard that yet. I will add it to our list, and we'll maybe play it on repeat myself. If 19 year old you asked you today what they should read or listen to, what would you say?
1: I would say we should all, the book, We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamananda Adichie. I think that's a, just a wonderful manifesto. It's so it's, and it's a quick read. Everyone should read it.
0: Awesome. Thank you.
1: Is there a wine that you would recommend? So this summer I spent some time in Italy and I think that I probably drank this wine <laughs> like water. It may not be the best wine in the world, but it's, extremely easy and wonderful and light to drink. It's um, called Didime, and it's the Malvasia grape. It's uh, basically a Sicilian wine.
0: Oh, wow. Awesome. Great recommendation. I love the Malvasia grape. And the thing about Italy is like, there's so many little pockets of wines that you might not find anywhere else in the world because every acre is like slightly different. So kind of a beautiful thing. What should our listeners do tomorrow to help them become dream makers?
1: I would say go help someone uh, say something positive and upbeat to someone, you know, that they come into contact with. I think that's I think right now the world needs a lot of kindness. I feel the atmosphere globally is so vitiated. There's so much negativity and, uh, you know, everything is so polarized that I think that if we, you know, every day, if we have one little we do one little act of kindness, say something that can help someone, you know, you never know what someone else is feeling. And I think COVID and the pandemic have really sort of stressed people in so many different ways. That's all very doable. That's in your hands. Thank you, Gayatri. The world needs more
0: kindness. I couldn't agree more. That was beautifully stated. And I really appreciate having you on the show. This was so much fun. Hope you had a good time as well. I did. It wasn't as
1: difficult as I thought it might be, you know, (laughs) being uh, on the receiving end of the questions. So thank you.
0: Thank you for being on again and cheers to you. I'm going to have one more. Yes, cheers. Thanks so much for listening to the Dreammakers podcast. You can reach out to me Neha Saphat on Twitter at NehaSF. That's N E H A S F with your comments, suggestions, your favorite wake up song, wine or dreammaker woman to know. Please also leave a review and subscribe to Dreammakers wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, keep dreaming big, building up and being a good human.